So today I interview Dr. Joshua Pepper, professor of astrophysics, employee of NASA, and my first cousin. How cool is that? Basically, I throw all the questions at him. I don't even know if this is a podcast about therapy. We talk about James Webb, the sheer size and scale of our universe. Does life exist? Should it exist? UFOs, of course, science, pseudoscience. And what's really interesting is the suspicious bar near his campus where other astrophysicists, particle physicists, and other scientists of that ilk gather to drink beer and discuss. I wonder what they discuss. We'll also talk about an incident from Joshua's past where he nearly purchased Neil deGrasse Tyson's Honda Civic. At any rate, thank you for listening. My name is Benjamin Rusick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. So I'm super excited to be interviewing my my cousin, Josh, the actual astrophysicist. <laughs> and I am so tickled because I, I always wanted to do science. Remember, I don't know if you remember like the New York Times, they had the science section on Tuesdays, like the space section. Yeah. And I would just gobble it up even as a kid. And then I found out that there was such a thing as math and that if you wanted to study <laughs> the stars, you had to be really good at stuff like subtraction and long division. And I can't do those things <laughs> at all. So hello, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I've started a temporary position working at NASA uh, about two months ago. So I, I do need to start off by saying that everything I'm saying here is personal and my own opinion and beliefs, and I'm not speaking officially on behalf of NASA, NASA in any capacity. That is so badass that you have to say that. I feel so official. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. I'm actually, we're on video as well. Uh, you're all not going to be able to see that, but in the background, there's all these mathematical looking equations on the blackboard, and there's like a <laughs> printer and an old what looks like an ancient typewriter from like the 20s it's an old typewriter yeah it's from 1925 that an, a retiring professor was going to throw out and i decided to rescue it a beautiful old uh, do you use it i've used it like three times you should, for like a quick note just to like in, you should, amuse my students you should, who are you should do it, baffled by typewriter you should use it every day what i really should do is i should like show up at like a local starbucks like just carrying that with me, like people right. bringing in a laptop and just sit up there and like in the coffee shop as if like it's a totally normal thing to do. That's badass. You know who collects typewriters is Tom Hanks. Oh, really? Yeah, he, he collects old typewriters. Just another reason <laughs> to like Tom Hanks, I guess. Sure. So I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I get to live vicariously through your genius brain. And <laughs> uh, actually it runs in the family because Josh's brother, Daniel, is an entrepreneur and is also a super genius who built a long range drone company and is now building yep. another company and y'all are smart. <laughs> we're very neurotic. And so we have to prove to ourselves that we're, we know what we're doing. And so we really, uh, Josh, go after you, all you, you've proved it. You've proved it. <laughs> it's like, it's evident. Um, so we're going to talk about astrophysics, but I also, I'm going to talk about why is astrophysics good for the world? Like who cares? Who cares? You know, cause this is a mental health podcast, but we're also going to get into the nitty gritty. And what also impresses me is that, you know, things that most people don't know. And you know, a few things that almost nobody on the planet knows. I, I want to know what that's like. I want to know what it's like to be in your head. I want to know what it's like to like, look at a new planet or a new star and think, my God, I'm the first person in the world ever in the history of everything to see this thing. And I just think that is all about mental health and you're always so jolly and full of energy and you seem so <laughs> healthy despite the fact that you're completely neurotic that i know that this must be therapeutic it's got to be yes so 
we're going to start at the beginning, Josh. Why did you become an at? What was the, were you in college? Did you know what you wanted to do? I knew as a kid that I was really excited about science. I did sort of the usual like little kid interested in science things like going through a dinosaur phase, going through like a rock collecting phase, doing all of that stuff, as well as like, you know, bleeding into things like, you know, getting super into like science fiction and fantasy books. But my father, as you know, is a a scientist and engineer who worked at the NASA Center in Cleveland for many, many years. And he always encouraged my interest in math and science. So I always knew from as a kid, I wanted to do some sort of science-y thing. As I was getting through high school and into college, I started gravitating, you know, no pun intended, gravitating towards physics and astronomy. At college, I started off as a physics major. But, you know, when you go from high school to college, it can be a very daunting thing where you suddenly encounter so many more people who are just as smart and capable and driven as you are. And I found out that astrophysics at my school had a lot more opportunity for doing research as a student, a lot more uh, professors per student. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I ended up as an astronomer. Okay, awesome. Um, So before we get into that, there's a story your dad told me that I love. Do you know the story about the gold? About the gold. So he 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 was walking around the office. I guess at NASA, as one does. I guess his job, he was specialized in solid lubricants for satellites. Is that correct? Yeah. He was looking at some old satellite parts, and there's parts of the satellites that are made of gold because because of science and we need gold for that. And so he yeah. like picked it up. He's like, oh, this is cool. And so he went around the whole place picking out little bits of gold from all the used equipment. And then <laughs> put them in some machine, because there's always a machine for this at, at places like this and melted it all down and had what he said was basically like a, not quite a golf ball sized lump of gold, but a pretty substantial lump of gold. And he's like, wow, I've got this lump of gold. This is pretty valuable and this is pretty cool. But because he was either a wise man or a fool, he turned it in to... (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that story? I have never heard that story. No, I didn't know about that. It does not surprise me about my dad at all. That sounds exactly like... Your dad's he's a mensch for sure. And uh, just for those of you who are wondering, I am Josh's mother is my aunt and my uh, father's younger sister. So anyway... I guess the first thing I want to know is I'm pretty dyslexic, whatever that means. I have difficulty with numbers. I I can understand concepts just fine, but I can't get numbers straight. And I I would fail Mm -hmm. at that. What was it like um, learning all that math and like the physics? I mean, it must have been really something. Well, I mean, it was like, you know, you learn things in a classroom setting where you're reading books and you're working on exercises and you're talking to teachers and other students trying to figure stuff out. Part of it was exciting because it's like a puzzle that you're trying to figure out. And at least at kind of the high school and undergraduate level, it's the kind of a puzzle that you know there's an answer to, you know there's a right answer, there's a way to progress and to figure it out and to come up with a solution. And challenging, it's, it can be exhausting, but it's, I never felt fully like discouraged in that sense. But what I think I can say to maybe give it a comparison uh-huh. to maybe some of other listeners or other people who have different kinds of ways of learning or ways of understanding the world, I am totally incapable of doing anything musical. And if you were to give me a musical instrument, like a keyboard or, or a guitar or something like that, I'd be like bang a few notes and be like, it is baffling to me how anyone could actually touch this thing and produce nice sounding 
sound. I know musicians who can pick up unfamiliar instruments and after like noodling around for a few minutes can just figure it out. I'm not really far along that that spectrum, but like, you know, some people who just when presented with numbers can start playing around with them and start making sense of them in the same way that I think some people picking up an instrument can start feeling their way to music. And I think maybe that's a good kind of comparison. Yeah, fortunately, I'm, I can do neither of those things. Um, <laughs> so have you heard of the show For All Mankind? I have heard of it. It's on my list and I have not had any chance you to watch got it. Us. I, I just watched the first season. I watched these scenes. I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler, but it's not the whole thing. Sure. So there's a scene where there's there's a spaceship that's headed towards the moon and it's going too fast. And mm. they have to somehow change the... I'm going to use a word that I don't understand, telemetry, because I don't know what telemetry is, but it makes me sound like I know what I'm saying. What does telemetry mean? <laughs> okay. What is telemetry, Josh? What is that? Telemetry is actually, that is the the transfer of information between satellites. So telemetry is like the communication. So I think what you may be meaning is changing either, either their velocity or their um, trajectory. Their vector. Vector. Their vo- or tra- yeah. vector. Ooh. Or, or trajectory. That's probably right. Okay. Trajectory. Yeah. So I, I just, I'm making up words that's and fine. sounding like a complete idiot, but that's fine. <laughs> that's what I do. So here I am. I'm improving my mental health by imp- increasing my, my lexicon here. So the thing was going too fast and it was going to miss the moon and everybody was going to die. And so they had to do this trick where they would have to launch a thing from the surface of the moon to kind of go up there and grab it. And she's like, okay, uh, we've done the calculation. She gets she gets on the board and she puts a big curve. And this is the thing. It's going this fast. And you have to launch it this time. And boom, boom, boom. And then you will meet the thing that's orbiting around the moon at exactly boom. And you have a four-minute window to do your thing. And she just did it like bam, 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 bam. Like she had it all figured out. Is that shit possible? Like, do people really do that stuff? You know, that's a good question. I am not aware of anyone who does anything like that under time pressure. Right. Like when we're building, you know, designing missions or we're planning projects or anything like that, what we're doing is like sitting down and we're going over the calculations and you do it once and then you do it again. And then you take it to your friend and they double check the calculations. Okay. And then you you turn things around to make sure that it all makes sense. Right. And it goes through layers of review and review. Right. They kind of do that, but they, I guess they speed it up a little bit. I mean, I know that at least in the, in the Apollo program, the astronauts in fact did have to do certain calculations in real time to figure things out. Right. But these days, I'm not aware of anyone who does anything like that. All right. I guess the math wasn't too hard for you to learn and you figured it all out. What do you specialize in, Josh? So I specialize in the field of exoplanets. That's so cool. I, I specialize in the discovery of planets orbiting other stars which is a field that didn't really exist when I went to college, but has blossomed into one of the biggest areas of science. How many how many exoplanets have we found? So there's well over 5,000 discovered so far. It's like something like 5,100, orbiting about 3,700 stars, because there's a lot of multi-planet systems that have been and can you tell our listeners how sure. you find these things? We actually have many different ways of finding planets, but the way that I use, which is probably the simplest way to describe, is that let's assume that you're staring at thousands and thousands of stars, and all of those stars have planets orbiting them. You can't see the planets directly in most cases because the planets are so dim compared to their stars, and they're so close to the stars. But what you can do is if the star happens to have a planet orbiting it, and though the plane of the planet planet's orbit happens to be aligned with our line of sight, then every time the planet goes around in its orbit, it will pass in front of its star from our line of sight. It will block the light of the star from our perspective. And then the star will appear to dim by a little bit. So what we do is we stare at thousands or really at millions of stars constantly looking to see if their brightness is dipping by just a little bit on a regular basis. And if it does, 
then we can infer that there is a planet orbiting that star and the, and the size of the dip indicates how big the planet is and how often the dip occurs tells us how long the planet's orbit is. And then we can do further observations to confirm that that's in fact a planet. And then we can do all kinds of new observations to learn more about the planet and the star. So that's how we do it. And so my understanding is that the sensitivity of these things is like if one of these telescopes could look at a flashlight three miles away and if a mosquito passed in front of the flashlight, it would be able to detect the dip Yes, I, I'd actually have to do the calculation about the size of a mosquito compared to the size of a Yeah, flashlight. of course you but would. Yeah, I mean, that is a comparable level of precision. I, I think a mosquito is maybe probably too small, maybe a fly. Oh, is that all? Maybe a fly in front of a flashlight. What's the coolest exoplanet you found so far or the weirdest? one. Yeah, so counterintuitively, the coolest exoplanet we found is actually the hottest exoplanet ever discovered. So the main project I worked on for a lot of my life was called the KELT survey, K-E-L-T, which stands for the Kilodegree Extremely Little Telescope. It's a pair of telescopes, and we used them to discover 26 planets. And one of them is a particular planet that we named KELT 9b. So we get to name planets when we discover them. Um, but the convention is you name them after the telescope that discovers them. The planet is is called the B object. So Kelt 9 is the star and Kelt 9B is the planet. So Kelt 9B is a big gas giant planet like Jupiter, but it is orbiting so close to its star that it orbits the star about once every day and a half. And the star itself is about twice as hot as our sun. It's called an A-type star. And because of the combination of how hot the star is and how close the planet is, the surface of that planet is heated up so much, it's actually hotter than the surfaces of a lot of stars. To this day, it's the hottest or nearly the hottest exoplanet ever discovered. And it has all kinds of cool things that it can tell us about how planetary atmospheres behave under extreme conditions. How do they, like, what, like, does it rain diamonds? Like, what happens there? Not there. It's too hot for it to rain diamonds. The diamonds would be vapor. Too hot. <laughs> does it rain yeah. diamonds anywhere? Is that a thing? I don't know about raining diamonds. It's pretty well believed that a lot of places will rain glass because Whoa. these are uh, some planets where the where the surfaces are the rocky planets like Earth or Mars or Venus. But it's so hot that the silicate materials in the surfaces, that is the kind of like silicon, which is makes, makes up glass and sand, all of that gets vaporized and then it blows around on, on these huge winds to the dark side of the planet. Wow. Uh, and then it rains out as it condenses down. These are things that we've theorized, but it's really, really hard to directly observe or measure them. And so this is one of the big things we want to do with the next generation of telescopes. Wow. So it sounds like James Webb is going to be able to pick up new things around exoplanets. Is that all bullshit or is that true? Or what's the science? No, it's true. It'll observe the atmospheres of a bunch of exoplanets and it'll tell us a lot more about the composition of their atmospheres and other conditions like their temperature and pressure. It won't be able to do that for Earth-like planets. It doesn't have the sensitivity to do that. That'll be for the next generation of telescopes. What it'll also do, which is going to be really, really cool, is directly observing very young, newly forming planets in regions where they're forming just right near their stars where their stars are being born. And that's going to be really cool. Why do planets form? Okay, the shortest way of saying it is that planets form because of conservation of angular momentum. So the basic idea, here's my my 90-second summary of a planet formation. So you start off with a big cloud. So you know those pictures of from like the Hubble and, right. uh, and, and Webb of these big clouds in space? Those are clouds of gas. And they slowly are collapsing under their own gravity. 
And as they collapse, they are spinning by just a tiny bit due to turbulence in the clouds. And just like a figure skater, as they pull in their arms, they spin faster and faster. As these clouds shrink down and collapse, they spin faster and faster. And so the central core of that cloud forms the star, but that spinning basically spins out a disk of material called a protoplanetary disk around the star. And that disk of material is made up of gas and dust. And that material then itself forms into planets orbiting the star. I'm going to say a thing. So uh, yeah. I, over the years, um, I've listened to a lot of bullshit. There's a way, there's a certain lack of grittiness and specificity that when you, you can tell when somebody's speaking a lot of bullshit. Like, for instance, when someone says, oh, the moon landings were faked, they spat out a lot of cool sounding theories like, oh, the flag wasn't waving and oh, we couldn't see the stars. And they have these sort of really kind of not very in-depth observations. If somebody has a wild conspiracy theory about the election or whatever it is, and they kind of make these large proclamations about how the government is lying, how NASA is lying, or how these, these people are doing this and big pharma and all this stuff. And you can kind of hear it. You can kind of hear the lack of, of really gritty knowledge that you can barely follow. And what came out of your mouth just now was the kind of knowledge that sounds very, very real and authentic. And it's just like conservation of Angular, what the fuck? You know, sure. <laughs> you know, I've, I, uh, I'm part of a uh, flat earth group on Facebook just because it's fun. I don't, cannot tell you how many pictures I've seen. First is a picture of someone saying Jesus is great. And the next picture is like of the mm -hmm. horizon saying, look, the earth is flat. You can see it. It's so obvious. And to listen to a geologist or a real scientist talking about, you know, why this is this and within this certain parameter of such and such, the, the line will remain flat and constant. And they use all these words and it just... It's, 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 just, it's great to hear. It's great to hear how, how specific and concrete you are. It's really nice, even if I don't get like most of it. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I think another really important way of, of trying to differentiate between you know, people who I think are generally honest and straightforward about trying to explain things that they really believe are true versus people trying to sell you on some sort of you know, outlandish conspiracy theory is honestly about their degree of humility when they're talking about these things. I mean, when I just talked about, you know, yeah. star planet formation, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, qualify it with a whole lot of caveats there, but like usually when scientists are talking about these things, the reason it can be so impenetrable to people is because we load up all of our language with so many, you know, qualifiers and caveats and say, like, well, it works here, but not here. And it's like this kind of thing. And I know I'm being kind of, you know, hand wavy about this yeah. because we know yeah. how easy it is to slip into these grandiose proclamations of like, oh, it's all like this or all like that. And so I think that's a good way of, of sort of knowing just, you know, the person you're talking to, are they being kind of like admitted about their, you know, the limits of their knowledge or the limits of what they're saying? It's really interesting to hear that from from, especially from the right these days, politically, that there's this sort of re rebuke of all people who have knowledge. Like, oh, that person <laughs> has a PhD. Oh, that person says they know what they're talking about. Why, why are you listening to them just because they know what they're saying? Like that scientist over, that's just a scientist. They're just, a, they have a money interest, you know? Also, I think with scientists, there's no ego project. Y'all are just doing your thing. You love what you do. And someone asked you an honest question, you gave them an honest answer, as opposed to somebody who has a message. You have the rare guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is, I think, reasonably good at explaining things in lay terms. What do you think of that guy, actually? Seems like a great guy. I, I almost bought his car um, as he was. So when I was an undergrad, he was a postdoc at the university where I was at. And uh, he was selling his, his Honda Civic. And uh, I took it for a test drive with him, but ended up not buying it, which apparently was a bad decision, according to everyone I know. <laughs> oh no, because you could have sold it for, um, yeah, for whatever. But I, um, 
<laughs> but I know, I mean, I think he's a very good science communicator. I'll tell you what, I mean, you know, speaking as a scientist who works with thousands of, well, thousands, but there are thousands of other scientists who work in the U.S., there are way more scientists out there than good science communicators. Science communicator is one of the those jobs where we need so many more and better skilled people. There's lots of scientists to do scientific work. There's not many people who can speak clearly and understandably about science and connect with them. Yeah, I just thought of this thing. A lot of the bullshit that I see perpetrated in the medical community and really a lot of communities around drugs and vaccines and science are by people who really don't have PhDs. They're really good at public speaking. That's what they're good at. They're good at reaching people. They're good at making TikTok videos. They're expert at editing. They're great at collating terrible information. Um, seeing a lot of chiropractors and nurses and uh, doctors who've lost their licenses to go into holistic medicine. Not knocking nurses, by the way. I love them. But folks that just don't have, that aren't highly, highly qualified perpetrate a lot of really terrible information because they're just really, really good at it. That's where they put their expertise. Any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, so, so I don't know anything about how like the medical you know system works about that in terms of like knowledge and communication and all that. But the basic idea of certain people who's if there's jobs, communication isn't part of their job. If they're not credited and rewarded and promoted yeah. based on a certain skill like communication, then most of them aren't going to develop it. And you know, among scientists, I mean, one of the interesting things about how the science is set up in the United States and a lot of other places in the world is that many of us are not just active scientists, but we are teachers at universities. And so those of us who teach usually develop, hopefully, some amount of skill in explaining complicated ideas. I feel like you, you're you quite good at it. Um, I'm Maybe you should be a Neil deGrasse Tyson type. I, and, and... <laughs> well, if, if someone wants to offer me a job just being a Neil deGrasse Tyson type, then sure, maybe I can try to do something. I'm going to talk a little bit about. Well, I'll talk, I'm going to talk a lot about the search for life in the sure. universe because I think that is therapeutically important. Because if we th realize that we're not alone, I think we would be better people. Does your studies in exoplanetology? What's the word? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just made that up and it worked. Um, is your do your <laughs> studies in exoplanetology? Did they increase your belief that life is out there? Decrease it or have no effect on it? Um, slightly increase it, only because. The planets that I've discovered with my, or I really, my team has discovered are almost certainly not places where we expect to find life. They're mostly big gas giant planets like Jupiter mm -hmm. or Saturn, where you, we wouldn't expect to find life. But it does illustrate and illuminate just the huge variety of different kinds of planetary systems that are out there. Before we started finding exoplanets, there was a lot of belief that most planetary systems would look like our own solar system. And what we're finding is that maybe there are those out there that look like our solar system, but there's also a huge variety that don't. So and by that, I mean, what kinds of planets do you have? Are they big gas giants or are they small terrestrial okay. planets? Are they in circular orbits or really uh, eccentric, elongated orbits? Are the planets really close to the star or far from the star? All different kinds of combinations. So by seeing all that variety and diversity of planetary systems out there, it means that there's a lot of opportunity for things to be in a lot of different ways. We think we know, this is, you know, we absolutely are not, you know, certain of this, but we think we know a lot of the things that will promote the ability for there to be life out there. And this is a highly active and highly debated, you know, set of questions about, you know, what can we say about where there might be life out there? 
But simply there being a hugely diverse range of planetary environments means that if life requires a certain set of conditions, then there's a lot more opportunities for those conditions to arise. So that's the way I think about, you know, looking for these planets telling us about the possibility right. of life. So I want to talk a little bit about the Goldilocks zone. Uh, so the Goldilocks zone sure. is it refers to a parable where, you know, the porridge is not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. And that refers to the distance that a planet is from a star, that it's not too hot, it's not too cold, I'm assuming so that water can exist and life, theoretically, as we know it, can thrive. Is that the correct definition of that? Yeah, that, so that liquid water. Liquid water, the, yeah. the temperature is to allow the water to be in liquid form. I, I want to let you know that I use that analogy in therapy a lot because I think there's a Goldilocks zone between mm. people where the relationship can thrive. The life is the relationship where if you get, sometimes sure. if you get too close to somebody, the relationship falls apart because it's too hot things get too hot. Or if you are too distant, it falls apart because it's too cold. And there's usually a just right spot for different people based on their different personalities and dimensions. Like I'm a planet with such and such and such properties, and you're a star with such and such properties, and our ideal distance is thus. For instance, like I knew a guy who really, really, really wonderful human being, but when you got close to him, all of his shit would come out and it wouldn't go so good. <laughs> so... <laughs> So let me get a little uh, account. So my understanding is that the Milky Way has 100 billion stars in it. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Is that the average stars. amount of stars in a galaxy? So galaxies come in a huge variety of sizes and types. There's some that are many, many times bigger than our Milky Way and some that are many, many times smaller. My recollection last I checked on this is that our Milky Way is, for a spiral galaxy like ours is, it's a little bit bigger than most, but nowhere close to the biggest. And how big is the biggest? Oh, God. I want to say, if you're measuring by the mass of the galaxy, I would guess probably between 100 and 1,000 times more massive than our Milky Way. And does that include stars or just the dark matter question thing? That would include everything. Galaxies are made primarily out of dark matter. That's the biggest contribution of the mass. And there's also then the stars and dust gas. But they all tend to have the same fraction of stars versus dark matter. So yeah, if you add it all up, I think the biggest ones you know, scale up the Milky Way by like 100 or 1,000. So like you would have 1,000 billion stars in a galaxy. Yeah, like, you know, of order, instead of hundreds of billions, it could be like tens of trillions. And it sounds to me as though the stars tend to have planets more often than they do not. Is that correct? Yes. As far as we can tell, at least within our, our Milky Way galaxy, and almost all stars tend to have planets. And we've got no evidence or no reason to believe that that should be different in other galaxies. So it seems to me that the proposition that we are the only life in the universe, and how many how many galaxies are there, they think? Oh, I mean, at least, I mean, we don't know the exact number. I mean, we, we don't even know. Within the observable universe, it's easily hundreds of billions. Hundreds of billions. Galaxies. Hundreds of, okay. So hundreds of billions of galaxies, each containing hundreds and hundreds of billions of stars, which is a stupid number. <laughs> So uh, that means that you take all those stars, and if there's more planets likely than not, I understand they're not all going to be terrestrial planets, and they're certainly not all going to be in the Goldilocks zone, but you're going to have a hell of a lot of Earth-like planets out there. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. In, in probably in the trillions. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah that sounds right. Wow. Yeah. And the other thing I want to talk about is distance in space. So my understanding sure. is that if the sun were the size of a grain of sand, the closest star would still be three miles away. Is that pretty much correct? That sounds about right, yeah. So, <laughs> watch so as the, I'm watching his brain do these little I'm trying, I'm trying to do the calculations. Get, get so by the that nearest, shot board. <laughs> <laughs> so the nearest stars are about 200,000 times further away from the sun as the Earth is from the sun. 
you take the distance from the Earth to the sun, you multiply by like 200,000, that's about the distance to the nearest star. So there's an enormous amount of space in the universe. The space is so large that galaxies routinely collide, but there's so much space that there's no collision. There's just, they just sort of come together and... Right, so the galaxies collide, but the stars don't collide when the galaxies collide. So the, the metaphor that I, I like to use with students is imagine two people holding handfuls of dry rice and they throw those handfuls at each other. And most of the rice grains will just go through and fall on the other side. Maybe a handful, you know, a few will, will collide. So because galaxies are large compared to the distances between them, that when they're moving around, they collide easily. Yeah. But stars are really small compared to the yeah. distances between them. Yeah. So they don't collide very often. What do you suppose dark matter is? I mean, the consensus seems to be it's some sort of unknown particle that interacts very, very poorly with all matter except for gravity. Um, but beyond that, I frankly don't know. There are people who are way more qualified to speculate about that. But there's a huge amount of evidence that there is something there. It's not just saying that, oh, we think that there's this stuff out there among the stars and we're just going to call it dark matter. It's that for the last 60, 70 years, we've been making very detailed measurements of how galaxies move and behave and how stars move mm-hmm. in their paths around the galaxies. We see so many lines of evidence showing that there's got to be so much more mass yeah. than what we can see in all the stars and, right. and dust and gas. So that's what we call dark matter. So I use the dark matter analogy a lot in therapy. Again, here I go again, because yeah. hey, this is a therapy podcast. Sure. A lot of times I'll see behaviors in my patients or in my couples that is not account for what I can see. Like somebody will suddenly get angry or they'll become this or they become this. And dark matter in my universe can be childhood trauma. It can be an argument mm-hmm. that they had five years ago that they didn't tell me about. It could be some sort of mental disorder, something that I cannot see, something that's in the dark right? that does not account for what I'm looking at. And that's exactly the same sense in which we're using that term dark. It's not to say that it's scary or or even mysterious in the sense beyond that. We just simply don't know what it is. The technical term we like to use is, is parametrizing our ignorance. Ooh. It's saying, we don't know, and here's exactly what we don't know, and here's the way we don't know. <laughs> But that's a way of, telling, of helping us figure out what we do know also. Yeah, I like talking about science as a measure of how much we know and exact we know exactly how ignorant we are. Like we 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 are this stupid. <laughs> you know? We're just missing stuff. And and the whole purpose of, of the field that I work in is to is to slowly reduce that. Yeah. Slowly Well, would you agree that science is, is about what you can measure? Or would you say it's also about what you can measure and what you can postulate? Like, well, um, how would you sum it up would, if you could? I would go more with science is the process that helps us explain the things that we see in nature in ways that make sense in some sort of systematic way of understanding. I, I guess like that. that's probably, I'm sure there's better ways of doing it. I guess what I see is the mistake that scientists sometimes make. And I, cause I hear them mm-hmm. argue is that they get hung up on an explanation about something in nature. And I think they bring their own shit to the table and maybe it sure. becomes an ego thing. Like there's a saying in therapy, would you rather be married or would you rather be right? And because a lot of people <laughs> argue themselves out of a marriage. And I think sometimes I wonder if in science, if sometimes somebody would rather be right than be, I guess, factually correct. Oh yeah. I'm sure there are many individual scientists that, you know, they would much rather have their pet theory embraced or whatever. But what we hope is that the whole scientific process, not individual scientists, but the entire ecosystem of scientists and students and experimentalists and theorists and journals and the debate that we have 
eventually chops away at the things that just simply aren't supported yeah. and leaves behind that which is shown to be you know, supporting our theories and, and is fits with what we see in nature. I saw a, a documentary of part of it was these two anthropologists arguing about where people migrated from and the guy's like, and this is what happens. Mm-hmm. And then the guy interrupted, you don't know that. You don't know that. Nobody knows that. We haven't done it. It was just like, wow. God, guys, can't you just like you're... You, compare each other's data and have tea or something. This is ridiculous. But you know what? That's a good point, though, because a lot of the the things that we do spend arguing about as scientists is what, in fact, do we know and don't we know? Because we can just talk offhand about, you know, like, oh, science knows this or science doesn't know that. But when it comes down to, like, you know, a really the the edge of, like, the frontier of what science is working on, there's usually a lot of debate about what we do and don't know. And that's exactly what we're trying to figure out. Right. Do you have a theory that you're working on, like something, your little pet idea about the universe or about exoplanets or anything like that? I'm not much of a theorist. I've done some theory in the past, but I'm not the kind of person who comes up with like an idea of, oh, this would be like a really cool explanation of this thing that we're seeing. I'm more of an observer. And so what I like to do is think about observations I'd like to take that would shed more light, (laughs) so to speak, on the universe. I have ideas for what I'd like to build or or I'd like, you know, Which uh, which is what? NASA to build. What do you want NASA to build? I think that we should be building space-based telescopes uh, actually, a, a suite of them that will be in orbit around the sun, not an orbit around the earth, that will be constantly observing the entire sky at all times. Right now, we don't have that. This is sort of like a scientific analogy to situational awareness that they have in the, in the, on the battlefield. Okay. But right now, there are certain parts of the sky that we simply can't observe right now because, because we don't have any telescopes that can point there. Because the sun's um, in the either, because the sun's in the way, typically, and there's like certain telescopes who can see certain things closer or further. Like right now, we have a mishmash of different telescopes observing at different wavelengths, different colors of light, with different areas in the sky who reobserve those same areas like every, say, two nights or three nights or every year. Or We don't have continuous viewing of the entire sky, and I think that's something we should aspire to. Wow. But it's hard and expensive, and there's not a slam dunk case for it. Right. That's why we're not going to do it anytime soon. It's not like there's, it's not like we're going to solve dark matter by building a telescope. When you say the entire sky, yeah. like I'm thinking that James Webb Telescope took a picture of the, the, all those galaxies yeah. and it was the size of a grain of sand yeah. in the night sky. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by the entire sky? Like 100% of the sky literally all the time? That's what I mean. That would be a lot of telescopes. But you, So you can build telescopes that aren't focused on a very, very narrow patch of the sky. So for instance, I work on a, on a space mission called TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, that observes, uh, what is the fraction? I think it's like one, something like 180th of the sky, but at a given time it observes an entire 180th of the sky. And then, you know, then moves on and, and on and on. But if we built a set of telescopes, we could, in fact, have telescopes that were constantly observing the entire sky, not with the precision or resolution of James Webb, but enough to say things like, oh, when there's supernovas going off, or when there's, say, an interstellar asteroid that, you know, swings through our solar system. I see. Or, I see. So the yeah. idea is to sort of keep track of all the stuff. Keep track of all the stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's cool. Do you think we're in danger of being hit by an asteroid? Well, I mean, Earth in general, yeah, of course. I mean, we're hit by asteroids all day. Uh, I think what you mean is, are we in danger well, big, of being big hit one. by a big one that would really yes, hurt us? Yes, yes. At a given time, um, we've got enough knowledge out there that it's pretty unlikely 
that anything that we haven't seen is big enough to hurt us and will be hitting us anytime soon. Okay. There's a bunch of people like that. out there working on, on reducing those odds even more, and we should be supporting them. <laughs> How do we reduce the odds? We build telescopes to, to search all of the space in the solar system to pick out all of those asteroids that are big enough to hurt us and to track their orbit so we know exactly where they're going. So what do you lob like a nuclear missile at them? Like what do you no, do? No, you don't want to do that because you throw a nuclear missile at an asteroid, you just break, break it into a lot of different pieces. And those pieces are still big enough to hit us. And then you get that, you get that movie Greenland. Did you see that? Uh, Greenland? Uh, oh, no, I haven't seen it yet. Not yet. Oh, dude, you got to see it. It's It's kind of like a so bad it's good movie. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really good. <laughs> It's like it's clearly a B movie, but it's got like an A story. Okay, anyway. I'll check it out. But yeah, I mean, so the way that we would deal with that is, I mean, the, the the preferred way is you would discover the asteroid long enough in advance, like years in advance, not days in advance. You discover it years in advance, and what you do is you fly up a rocket there, you attach a, a rocket engine to it that has a very gradual thrust, and over the course of years, it slowly nudges it so that after over the oh. course of years, it totally misses the Earth completely. Okay. I wish I could do that with like future relationships. I- can you imagine them in the future? Like, you're going to meet this really horrible person. You're not going to know it for some time. But like, what if you could put a rocket on them temporal? I don't know. That's a weird analogy. Anyway, um, do you often make new discoveries? Not like, often. Do you discover new planets? I, no? I mean, so it depends. You know, you have to decide what you mean by a discovery. I mean, like, you know, with our telescopes, we were taking new observations every night and we were discovering. Okay, let me, let me, yeah. let me break it down. Like discovering a new planet. And do you get to name a new planet if you find it? So you can, but if you name it something ridiculous, no one else is going to use that name. So the way that the planetary community has evolved, this is actually kind of really odd. The way that we discover planets determines how we name them. And if they're discovered using the transit method that I described to you, or another method uh, that's called microlensing, then usually you name that planet after the telescope that discovered it. So that's why there's a whole bunch of planets out there called Kelt 1b and Kelt 2b, the ones that we discovered, or Hat. Hat P1b or Hat P2b or Wasp 11b. So it contains a, hi- a history of its discovery yeah. in the name. But why why not just use a name like, you know, uh, Joshua Pepper 5612b? Well, that's fine if you've only got like, say, like 20 or 30 planets, but what do you do when you got 2,000 or 20,000 or 200 million? It's like having a bunch of kids that are all named after you. Uh, well, but, but then you- <laughs> <laughs> well the, re- the reason I didn't call them Joshua Pepper 1A, B, or C or whatever is because it wasn't just me doing this. I had a bunch of collaborators and uh, co-investigators and students. and Yeah, but, but fuck them. <laughs> I mean, you, need to, you, need to, you need to spread your seed no, across the universe. science is a collaborative effort. There's no... No! I'll tell you. The, the, you mean there's no room for narcissism? Oh, there's certainly room for narcissism, but that's never going to help you. It's, well, almost never. Hopefully never. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really, it's a really a collaborative effort, and we depend on work by you know students and postdocs and, and, and professors and people who are doing all kinds of different tasks on it. And so that's why we try to award, you know, at least in some cases, award the credit to the collaboration. All right. How do you feel when you discover a new planet? So... The problem with answering that question is that it's not a singular event. The initial hopes of a possible discovery to the actual discovery of a planet, back in the day when we were discovering ours, that process took years. So you go from like, oh, I see like, I'm looking through hundreds of thousands of of stellar plots of stars and I see, here's okay, here's the 600 that passed this cut. Here's the 30 that passed the next cut. Here's the 30, here's the 10 that we're going to observe with this you know, telescope. And we go on and on and on. And as time goes on, your confidence that one of them is a, is a real planet discovery increases. It's almost never a, 
oh, bam, there we got it. Sometimes there is, and that feels pretty great. But usually by the time you get to that point, you've been working on that particular object for months or years. Has there been a moment when you knew that you were looking at something or that you knew something that nobody else on earth knew or had seen except you? Yeah, actually early on, early on in grad school, I was working actually not with my own uh, data, but with data from an observing program by a friend of mine named Chris. He was also looking for planets he discovered, and he was observing tens of thousands of stars. And when you look for planets like this, you also discover lots of variable stars. These are stars that are pulsating or rotating or eclipsing in ways that you can see. And we were looking at a list of variable stars that were discovered in his project. And I was looking up in known catalogs of variable stars to see, oh, like what's the name of this star? And we looked and we realized at a certain point, oh, this star was not listed as a known variable star. We were the first people to ever realize that that star was pulsating in that way. And I felt really excited and special that I was the first one ever realizing I am the only person who knows what that star is doing. And that was pretty cool. That's neat. Oh, I got a question. You might not be able to answer this. Is space cold? I heard that it wasn't, that it wasn't actually that cold. It's it's not cold. Let's say you had an ungloved hand and you exposed to the vacuum of space, you wouldn't feel cold because there's not enough atoms there to then, you know, absorb the, you know, over time, your hand's going to radiate its heat energy away and it'll get colder and colder. Right. But it's not like you, you know, sticking it into kind of like a snowbank and then all of a sudden, oh my God, it's really cold. Yeah. You know, you see these things like even that dumb thing in Star Wars where somebody, I think it was Princess Leia was hurtling through the sky and she was freezing. Her face was freezing as she was going through space, but like (laughs) it was really stupid. My understanding is that space is just a simple vacuum. And I guess when I see these people out there in spacesuits, I've always like, oh my God, how does that possibly work? But I guess it kind of, it's, it's just basically a big balloon full of oxygen that they're in that it's not like they're gonna right. you know they're in they're in danger of suddenly you know freezing to death or exploding or no, anything mean, that space is relatively benign well i wouldn't go that far i mean it's not i mean so it's not okay. benign in the sense that there's no pressure and so obviously if you spring a leak then you'll run out of air to breathe and the pressure will disrupt your blood vessels and things like that um, oh yeah it's pretty bad i mean you just really don't want i mean actually i've asked people about this you can survive being in vacuum for a certain amount of time. Now, I don't know if that time is like a second or two or 20 uh, seconds or two minutes. I don't actually know what it is. It's not like you immediately explode or freeze or anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're in a space suit in space, then you're, um, what it's doing is it's holding in the air to give you your pressure. It's providing your oxygen to breathe and it is keeping you warm. But if the heater on your spacesuit broke, it wouldn't be like, you wouldn't freeze in like a matter of minutes. It would probably seconds. take, in, or it wouldn't even be seconds. It would probably be, that's a good question. I would guess it would take at least half an hour to get down to like significantly cold because you're still retaining your heat. You're not like you're going to suddenly just freeze. So, so it takes time to radiate away that heat. Um, Do you ever think about how cool it would be to go to space and get in a rocket and get up there and check stuff out? So I want to tell you a story about someone who asked me something like this. I was at a party here in Pennsylvania with some people who were uh, students in a psychology program. Uh, my wife is a psychologist, and, and we were hanging out with some of her uh, her colleagues, and they were asking me about the kind of work that I do. And then some of them asked about going into space, and I said, uh, oh, I don't think I'd ever want to go into space. Uh, it's really dangerous and scary, and yeah, it might be awe-inspiring, but like, I feel like there's enough awe-inspiring things that I could do here on Earth that don't require a huge amount of risk and uh, and bother. And then I was talking a little bit more about the, the work that I was doing in terms of observing stars and discovering planets and understanding about the, the distances between galaxies. And one of the people there said, she said, how do you sleep at night? And at first I thought, 
she meant like, like what you're doing is so wrong and evil. Like, you know, how could you do that? But no, she meant that the way that astronomers have to think about the things that we do is so foreign and in some ways so scary to a lot of people that they couldn't imagine just doing that all the time, that constantly being having in your mind these distances and scales and magnitudes of what we do. And that's the way I kind of think about people who do, in fact, go into like astronauts or or even, you know, like airline pilots. I mean, people who pilot a big tube of metal through the air holding, you know, hundreds of people. And it just seems scary to me. It's just not the kind of thing that connects to my mind very well. Yeah. We all have uh, have our skills of like things that we're able to mentally comprehend and to mentally grasp that are just scary or foreign or strange to other people. So I don't know. Yeah. That's what I think of when I think about going into space. It's like, how could you want to like, that seems so scary and I just wouldn't want to do it. I, I, I would. <laughs> uh, do you know that the, are you... The particle physicist that the, what's it, the Hadron Collider? What's it the, called? The Large Hadron Collider, yeah. Yeah. Do you guys like hang out and like get beers and talk about shit? I do, in Are fact, guys- get beers and talk about shit with particle physicists who work at either Ooh, the Large Hadron oh, Collider. Tell or- me. So here at Lehigh, we have a couple uh, professors who are nuclear particle physicists. They have worked at the LHC in Switzerland, the Large Hadron Collider, but actually now they work at the Brookhaven National Laboratory, which is a big particle accelerator on Long Island. So it's a lot closer and easier to get to. And they do that. They work on colliding nuclei of heavy atoms in order to vaporize them at temperatures so high that they can actually mimic conditions near the beginning of the universe. And we can learn about how matter behaves in states like that. So there's a bar around here where we go out for beers on Friday afternoons or evenings. You know what we talk about when we go out for beers and and have a bunch of particle physicists and biophysicists and astrophysicists together? Sports. No, no, no. We talk about we, we talk about academic politics. We talk about who's doing a good job of running this department, or or who's going to get you know. Josh, that's a terrible, terrible waste, and you have to do something about it. This bar has to be a mecca of knowledge and learning. But, but you know what? We spend all the time, you know, when we're working on. I don't. I don't. I'm not, I don't give a shit. You guys are drinking beers and swapping very important information, and we need to give the conspiracy theorists something to focus on. It's like it's like PizzaGate. Like what is ta- like like at that bar? Yeah. There are going to be people talking about you know. Okay, we're going to do this particles experiment tomorrow, and the universe might end. We're not really sure, but we're probably going to end time and space as we know it. Hey, uh, pass the Tabasco sauce. Yeah. Well, right? I mean, like, look, it's, we get together. It's gossip. It's the normal kind of crap that people talk about whenever work people get together. They're talking about no, you know, <laughs> no. You can't bring regular people. You guys have to do something. No, I I want chalkboards. I want whiteboards. I want I want a dartboard with the cosmos on it. Actually, you know? if, if that's what you want, then probably what you want to do is you want to go to a conference, like a scientific conference, at one of these places where when the scientists get together, they do have some drinks, and then they'll start like talking about some like crazy ideas they'll have. But, okay, but that, I like that. It's a little bit rare. You have to kind of find them in the right mood. Listen, if you know any particle physicists who want to come on do a podcast, I would be all over that I'll, shit. I'll, I'll see what I can find out. You know what? There's a bunch of places. I know they do this a lot on the East Coast, maybe on the West Coast, called Astronomy on Tap, where they'll have a, uh, <laughs> a get-together at a bar where everyone will hang out and have a few beers, and then we'll bring some astronomers to talk about some new cool topic, whether it's you know galaxies colliding or discovering planets or you know, exploding stars. So yeah, look up Astronomy that's, on that's Tap cool. for opportunities to do that kind of thing.
Um, I want to ask, I, I mentioned James Webb before. Mm-hmm. How big a, de- big a deal is James Webb, really? I'll put it this way. If James Webb had failed to launch, it had, if, like, if the rocket had exploded on launch, that would have been arguably the end of U.S. being an, an international leader in astronomy. It was a $10 billion project that required an enormous investment and represented hundreds or even thousands of careers of professional scientists. It was big. And I know it has a large mirror. And, yeah. and did you, you've seen the photographs. Um, what do you think of those pictures? Do you think they're amazing? Are they off the scale? Are they like, oh my God? Of the telescope or the pictures taken by the telescope? By the telescope. Because I got a chance to actually see James Webb in the uh, in the clean room in NASA Goddard. Um, like, well, the, the, all you with the mirror, all the of course you it did. was really cool. Of course you uh, did, you shithead. <laughs> um, God damn it. It was, I mean, no, those pictures are amazing. I think the galaxy cluster, what's so cool about that one, I'll, I'll geek out a little bit about this. Please. So I'm sure you've already, you've seen the image and where you can see like all these galaxies and you see some like really funny shaped galaxies. And those funny shaped ones are galaxies that are about twice as far away from us as the really big bright ones in the center. It's because those funny looking ones have been lensed by the foreground galaxies. That is, the light from those funny looking galaxies has been focused and distorted by the gravity of those other galaxies. And so what we're seeing is them kind of literally magnified by the mass of the universe or the mass of that galaxy. And what's so cool about that is you look at the old photographs of that same area in the sky taken by Hubble, and you can see those lensed galaxies. When you look at them with Webb, you can see like individual spiral arms or bright knots or clusters in those galaxies. And the fact that we can see those levels of detail for a galaxy that far away is telling us about how galaxy structures were coming together very, very early on in the history of the universe. And that's just, that's amazing. What amazes me is that it looked like it was taken with a fisheye lens or something, like something broke. But what's amazing about that is you're seeing physics and theory in action. Yeah. Like there's all this theory about light bending around gravity, which I don't understand. I'm not going to get into, but there it is. And you're like, you know, it's really interesting to watch like, you know, conspiracy theories talk about, oh, it's just Photoshop. It's all fake. And they say that about oh, the it's, just a, it's just a few... Oh, for sure, for sure. Oh man, um, yeah, and uh, and it's like and the ignorance is so palpable. It's like you don't even know what the fuck you're looking at, you moron. It so, seems like such an innocuous thing to come up with an ex- with a uh, conspiracy. Well, theory, because it, you, people are into the flat Earth, or uh, they think that the moon uh, landings were faked, <laughs> or you know all that stuff. I see. Um, yeah. There's I I get into this stuff a lot because I just I I'm kind of arrogant and I enjoy lording over people who know <laughs> less than I do. So oh, oh last question. It got dinged with. Uh, it got hit with one of the, oh, yeah, the like a pebble or something. Yeah. Yeah. Is that going to really affect anything? Um, it shouldn't affect it too much. Now it was a much bigger hit than they were expecting this early in the mission. But from what I've what I've heard from the team, well, really just from the press releases they put out, is that it should have a minimal effect because the way these mirrors are built, if one of them gets damaged. All the others are still, like all the other mirrors on the, on the thing there are still reflecting the light in the correct way. So it's only going to be a degradation of some amount in the quality of the images. And it's a very small fraction of the light. So I wouldn't worry okay, about that's good. major, major problems. Okay. So I'm going to wrap up with something ridiculous because okay. I can't help myself. So we're going to talk about UFOs, government secrets, and NASA's dark side. Sure. <laughs> So I know you're an astrophysicist and you are not an aeronautics expert, as my UFO enthusiastic friend pointed out when I told him I was going to interview you. (laughs) 
So yes, Mike, he is not an aeronautics expert. However, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask him these questions anyway, because he's super smart. <laughs> There's these videos that the Pentagon has classified as, yeah, we don't know what the fuck this is. Mm-hmm. And there are these, they look like little Tic Tacs that are moving around the screen. They jump and they dive into the water. They take turns on a dime. There's no physics that can explain them. There's about, I don't know, I want to say a half a dozen of these things floating yeah. around. And nobody seems to understand them. And nobody has said they're fake. I of the personal belief that it is United States spy technology because like, I mean, the things that we were doing in the 70s were already <laughs> off scale. So what do you suppose is happening 50 years later? What do you think is going on? I honestly, I don't know. I think if I were forced to choose an explanation, and this is based completely on just my gut instinct, I would say it's some combination of rare, well, I, I was going to say like atmospheric phenomena because I've actually learned all kinds of really bizarre ways that light can reflect and refract off of things in the atmosphere to do really weird and unexpected things that we see with our telescopes all the time. Now, that's not going to mimic, like, say, you know, a resolved image of, a, of like a spacecraft or, or some sort of aircraft moving in a certain way, but you have to be really, really careful about what you're seeing. And something that's always puzzled me about all of those images, if you remember from back in the, like the 60s and 70s, people were claiming, you know, they were taking pictures of flying saucers. If you look at, you know, back at those images, they were kind of like blurry and they had like a lot of streaks or a lot of problems. Basically, all of these things that people were seeing were kind of just at the edge of the detectability of those cameras. Well, what's weird to me now, we've had enormous progress in camera technology, and yet all of these claimed detections of these, you know, aerial vehicles or UFOs or whatever we want to call them, they're still these incredibly blurry things. You know, maybe they'll like look a little bit mm-hmm. like, okay, maybe they'll look, see a shape or something. But you would think yeah. that after all of these decades, you know, we would have technology that would be seeing these things with incredible levels of detail and precision and, and catching them for more than just a few seconds. I think there was like actually a comic about this, but like it seems like if these are aliens out there, it seems that they're playing a game with us of staying just beyond the detectability of all of our... Maybe our, they're blurry aliens. Or maybe the aliens maybe, they're whole, maybe they come from a blurry dimension. Yeah, like maybe Bigfoot is just blurry, you know, maybe that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so here's what I would say about these things is that, you know, it'd be really interesting to find out. I mean, maybe it is, you know, unnamed or unpublicized American spy technology. I will say that having worked for the government for just a couple of months, it wouldn't surprise me even a little bit if the entire U.S. Navy had no idea of some major uh, spy program that, say, the CIA was running or the NRO or the NSA or the or the Air Force. The, the ability of government agencies to not talk to each other is way more pervasive than you can imagine. So, Can you say more about that? I mean, all I can say is just that, I, I mean, government is just a bunch of people working in projects, and especially once you get closer and closer to the military establishment, they have rules about what you can talk about and, and who you can talk to about. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this yeah, is... Even today. Yeah, I mean, this isn't using any knowledge that, like, you know, I have personally, aside from just knowing people who work in government. There's one and a half million employees of the U.S. federal government, even outside of, I think, outside of the DOD. So... If you just realize that there's a very large organization of people that compartmentalize information, there are so many ways of one group not knowing what the other group is doing. I mean, anyone who's worked in a large corporation knows about this, let alone the U.S. government. So the idea of Navy pilots, for instance, not knowing what something is or not being able to identify it, it's not like they are the worldwide experts completely in knowing every single thing else going on in the air by a U.S. government agency. Now, I don't want to impugn their credibility or their um, their expertise, but you know, the one thing that we learn in science is you never want to use absence of evidence of an excuse to just 
pick out whatever the wildest theory is. You want to be very cautious and careful. And I'll say, I don't know what these things are that they've seen. Maybe there's, they are craft that are doing things. Maybe they're some sort of weird camera defects, although I think some of them were seen by eye, so maybe you know, that wouldn't be the right explanation. I don't know. But I do know that saying it's some sort of you know organized alien invasion force or whatever the hell else people are saying, it's not really useful as an explanation, unless they're going to suggest good ways of confirming that hypothesis. Well, the thing is, is that uh, I'll wax psychological yeah. here, is that it's a projection because if you think about people are more fascinated naturally with the sky than they are the, the, the water, sure. right? Because there's something about the sky archetypally that captures our imagination. And UFOs and aliens also capture our imagination. They're mythological creatures, you know, yeah. angels and witches and werewolves and whatever, things from above, things from below. They fit our mythological construct. I mean, think about where we are now. You took someone 100 years ago and, and asked them to imagine what the future would be like. The things that we've discovered are beyond anybody's wildest imagination. You know, as Shakespeare said, you know, there are more things in heaven and earth that are imagined in your philosophy. Yeah. And it's just who the fuck knows? Mm-hmm. Like when you take the, what's the, it's called the Jahari window thing, when you, the, the, the space of things that you don't know. Oh, yeah. The things that we don't know, we don't even know what the size is of the things we don't know. Yeah. Uh, what if it's a fucking plant? I mean, who knows? What if it's a fungus? What if it's a, I, I don't know. What if it's um, a byproduct of of, of Bitcoin? I, I'm just, <laughs> you know, nobody knows. So listen, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of wrap up with one big question. Sure. If you could, let's say you were tooling around the lab one night mm-hmm. and you were able to somehow communicate with a alien species on another planet or even in another galaxy for whatever reason somehow they reached you they're like hey and they spoke english which is a lot of hypotheticals okay but let's just say and you had five minutes okay what would you ask them am i seeing them in person or am i just like communicating them like with like a telephone or radio sound telephone or radio. okay so if i just have questions i can ask them i can get basically like verbal answers back i think what i would ask them for five minutes is what is their belief about how they came to be? I would want to know whatever they chose to say, whether it was their mythological origin story or whether it was their scientific theory for their the development of their solar system, um, or you know, what, whatever way they answered that would tell us so much about who they were like and how they thought that I think. Mm-hmm. That would be a really cool question to ask. What do, yeah. story do you tell yourselves about how you as a people, as a species, as a planet or whatever, how did you come to be? That's so cool. I love it. <laughs> so Josh, it yes. was so awesome talking to you. My heart rate is up. That was like six cups of coffee. I feel fantastic. <laughs> did you have a good time today? I had a great time. This was really fun. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. Good talking to you, man. All right. Thanks again for listening, folks. And here's a preview. Dr. Pepper has promised me, a cadre of particle physicists and other scientists, to get together on my podcast and discuss what it's like to live in their world and in their heads. So hopefully that episode is coming up soon. Josh, I'm holding you to that. A side note, for any of my relatives listening, I've really enjoyed becoming better acquainted with this side of the family. Even though you guys all live on the East Coast, which is, it's not as bad as Marin County, but it's... I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about the East Coast yet. And you better watch yourself, because if you're not careful, I might end up interviewing each one of you. All right, folks, take care.